Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Have you heard the news? NDC is coming to America. That would be NDC Minnesota, May 7th to 10th at the St. Paul River Center. That's the one. Go to ndcminnesota.com today and register. And tell them Carl and Richard sent you. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we're coming to you from our studio spaces, respectively. I'm in the East Coast. He's on the West. Yeah. I'm in the USA. You're in Canada. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> well, what's interesting, of course, is we get a little studio run, and then March, we're all over the place again, right? We're going to be off yeah. to the MVP Summit, although not, not really planning on recording any shows. We've got all the shows shot through that. And then Dev Intersection down in Orlando, which should be fun. And Dev Intersection is going to be off the hook. You guys are putting together a killer show with some interesting Microsoft content, right? Yeah, including I am doing History.net. That's so cool. Yeah. It'll be fun to do it on stage for everybody. Very good. Exciting. Well, let's roll the music for Better Know Framework. All right, dude, what do you got? This came from App V Nexter, Josh Pollard. Oh, yeah? Uh, it's called PWA Builder, and it's at preview.pwabuilder.com. Or, of course, this is, you know, 1527, so 1527.pwap.me. It takes data from your site and uses that to generate cross-platform progressive web apps. Wow. You generate a manifest, you make a service worker, and you publish your PWA. It basically turns your website into a progressive web app. Interesting. So build up your website, get it to a certain point, and then run it through this, and it'll sort of show you the bits. It's a cool way to learn. And they have a web interface and a CLI interface. It's very, very cool. Interesting stuff. Yeah. And it's just the kind of stuff I expect to see. You know, once you get standards, tooling follows standards. Yeah. No, I can't, can't argue with you there. Great example of that. Yeah. Cool, dude. Nice find. That's what I got. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1485, one we did with Mr. Hunter back in October 2017, talking about .NET Core, the standard, and the future, and got a few good comments on the show. This particular one comes from John Watt, who I think was a little bit confused because he said, Scott said the .NET standard was just a standard? Huh. Hmm. When I'm in Visual Studio creating a class library, I have three options, .NET Framework, .NET Core, and .NET Standard. Yeah. So in that context, isn't .NET Standard also an implementation? (laughs) And it's, I guess it's kind of in the sense that it does definitely make sure that your project complies with a standard, but it's not necessarily any particular versions. It's just sort of the shared library implementation that can be executed on its own. So Mm. you don't have to use either one. So it's just more of a compliance thing, really. Yeah. So in the end, you still have to point to you know, what .NET standard library you're running against, Core or Framework or Xamarin for that matter. There are other flavors depending on which standard you end up going with. So, John, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We pop them like Smith Brothers cough drops. 
<laughs> hey, did you notice every barista looks like a Smith brother these days? What is the up with that, man? What is up with that? The Smith brothers were way ahead of their time. Apparently. That's all I'm saying. And that brings us to our guest, Scott Hunter, of course, is the director of program management on the .NET team at Microsoft. His team builds .NET Framework, .NET Core, ASP.NET, Entity Framework, the managed languages, web, and .NET tooling, you know, just almost everything. Everything that paid for my house. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, welcome, Scott. Hey, how's it going, guys? Things are good. Great. How are you? Excellent. What's new? Yeah. What you been up to? Been building any things? <laughs> so we're always up to something, of course. So first off, it'd be fun to just kind of start and, and kind of think about uh, where we've been the last last nine or 10 months. No kidding. Really? We shipped VS 2017 in March of 2017. Roughly, I, mean, I guess we're about 11 months away from that right now. And so that, that was what I would call the launch of .NET Core. We'd actually shipped .NET Core in June of the previous year, but there was no... Visual Studio tooling that was RTM'd at that time for it. So the, the tooling for .NET Core kind of shipped in March of, of 2017. One of the cool things for us is I'm, I'm kind of excited that as of December, so March to December, uh, we are, we actually have more than 500,000, more than half a million .NET Core developers now. Wow. Wow. They're using the product on a daily basis. Fantastic. Because a lot of folks are sticking with, what do you call it, framework? Standard? Yeah. Because uh, it works. It's what they're using. They don't, the cross-platform part's not important to them. Right. I mean, that's a lot of times, you know, the biggest confusion we'll get from customers is, do I have to move to core? Right. And the answer is, no, you don't have to move to core. It's really the, you know, the reasons you might want to move to core are you want cross-platform capabilities. You want the side-by-side capability of being able to have as many .NET cores on the machine. Right. And not take over the whole machine. Right. Those are really the prime reasons that you might want to use, you know, or you want to develop on Mac. Or Linux as well. I mean, but those those are the three primary drivers of why you need to look at .NET Core. If you if you don't need those things right now, then .NET Framework is a great place for you to be. And you know, we're only a couple months away from the build conference, and we have a bunch of exciting stuff to talk about .NET Framework mm. at the build conference this year. So many people are using ASP.NET Core for the just for the performance. I can't tell you the the all I know is the SDK data all up. So I know you know how many developers are actually using the product. Our assumption is that almost all of the developers using .NET Core today are, are using it with ASP.NET Core. Yeah. That's the primary workload that we have for .NET Core right now. Right. Well, and I remember last, I think it was the last time you were on at the time before that, you talked about pushing hard on performance for Core, that you guys were really sprinting the standards. Yeah. Once again, that was from a different reason, which is, you know, we look at our stack and we compare it to Node and we compare it to Java and we compare it to Go and we ask ourselves... What makes our stack, you know, better than those other stacks? Right. Yeah. And w- one of the things that we thought we could e- easily, you know, make a point of was trying to get .NET Core faster than some of those other stacks in public benchmarks that we don't actually run ourselves. And right. That was where we did the, the big push on the Tech Empower benchmark. Yeah, that's right. The Tech Empower benchmark is the one I was thinking of. Yeah. And we still continue to work on that. Because it is a moving target, right? The new versions of everything come out. I mean, with the Intel Spectre bug, especially it's a moving target because you're you're going to see basically every web platform drop 30%. Wow. Mm. Because of that that bug. It'll be interesting to see if it's that comprehensive. It's just like everybody drops back 30%. I know we talked about that, but maybe we should just revisit what that is. Sure. Just the high level uh, thought of the Spectre bug is there are, you know, our, our CPUs actually cache a bunch of stuff. And it's possible in certain circumstances for 
an application to actually look into that cache. And so imagine a case of running in a cloud and there's multiple apps running on the machine and you have the ability to potentially inspect and find stuff from, you know, another another process on the box. Wow. Right. Yeah, that's the simplest way to think about it. And, and it frightened me more from a cloud perspective that just being able to view between processes, like you might you actually may be able to run something on the cloud in a, in a VM there that might be able to see data from other VMs. Right. The big thing on the Spectre bug is, you know, if I'm, if I'm talking to one of my customers, mm-hmm. if you're only running your code, you're totally fine. Right. It's only when you run third-party code or code you don't own or trust 100% that there's a potential that code could read something from some of your code. Right. An example would be, you know, I'm running some third-party mail server on my machine and I'm running a web server on my machine with ASP.NET Core. Well, there could be bleed between with if the mail server was malicious, it maybe could could sneak in and, and see process data from the from the ASP.NET Core project. Yikes. Yeah. So the fixes are essential. The long-term fix actually changes to chips, which are just going to take years. There's no two ways around that. But in the meantime, they just released, it was around 15, like just days ago on Tech Empower. Yeah. So we should be able, I guess the question is, uh, did everybody run tests with patched machines or not? That I don't know. I know that we ran those same benchmarks on some of our hardware on patched machines and, you know, we saw the, the, the pretty big regressions when, when we did that. I've not had a chance to go look at the round 15 to see if those regressions are showing up. I think they are. I think they are at least for some. Although, so I'm looking at ULib MongoDB for between 15 and 14. looks like it dropped down 10 or 15,000 in the performance number. 10 or 15,000 doesn't sound like it's enough. It sounds like they're probably not running patch machines. Yeah. Although, interesting that it would slow down at all. In those numbers, but yeah. well, we we go up and down. Really? So I mean, our I'll, I'll be I'll be very frank. Our tech can go up and down itself. So you know, that's once again. I mean, the the product's changing all the time, and yep. and if we don't if we're not if we're not watching it, yeah, I'm looking at the tech and power 15 versus 13. 13 was the one that we came out in at the launch of of Core, and I'm looking at 15, and our numbers are a little higher. Right. So I'm going to guess they're not running Spectre patches on on those machines. But, it, you know, it, whatever, whenever the next round is, which, you know, could be months from now, it's going to be really interesting to have that conversation about, all right, everybody takes a hit because we need security. That this, mm. the, These patches are not optional. Yeah. The workloads that see the most hits with, this, with these patches are workloads that transfer from user mode to kernel mode a whole bunch. Right. And it happens to be that, mm. that applications using lots of I.O., Web applications are doing lots of I.O. Database servers are, are doing lots of I.O. So the primary workloads that you see hit the most are web and database workloads. While if you're doing some kind of computational thing, you won't see a hit at all because you're not making those switches back and forth between user mode and kernel mode. Yeah, very interesting. And, it, and of course, now you want to go look at the AMD chipsets, too, and just say, are they not effective as much? They, they took some patches, too. I mean, everybody did. I, I yeah. know that uh, ARM took patches. I know Google and, and Apple both patched a bunch of their stuff. Mm-hmm. The Intel chips took some patches, and AMD chips took some patches. So it seems like everybody was affected to some extent. Wow. There are differences between the two, but they're kind of crazy. Yeah, no, and you talk about it, something out of your control, really. Right. But at least in a lot of ways, it's like at least it's equal opportunity impact. <laughs> but back to fun stuff, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, we've got over half a million... Dotting core developers in less than a year, which I think is an amazing number. Yeah, it's great news, man. I'm Fantastic. And I feel like this last fall, like August, when you released .NET 2, Core 2, was really when you sort of hit feature complete. Like this was the version I was looking at going, I think we can move projects now that I could open something and 
in 471 or 461. And then if I didn't have UI stuff, right, the WPF or WinForms or anything, I should be able to just go recompile it. Yeah, that, that's a, that's an amazing thing too, as you said. Is the VS tooling shipped in March yep. of 2017, and then August of 2017 we launched .NET Core 2. And one of the big pushes on .NET Core 2 was obviously what we call .NET Standard 2. We brought about 50,000 APIs back to make it easier to to move your code between the the platforms. And it was amazing. It, .NET Core 2's adoption was one of the fastest I've ever seen. We shipped you know around mid mid August .NET Core 2 by mid September. To late September, .NET Core 2 had passed .NET Core 1 adoption completely. Wow. Wow. So the, the, the transition of people moving from 1 to 2 happened in about a six-week window, and our data at that point shows that everybody's using 2, and 1.0 is on a very fast decline. And since I have such a huge bent on the history of .NET right now, I'm abundantly aware that people hung on to the original 1.1 for a long time before moving to 2, because there was a bunch of breaking changes in 2. Yeah. And I, I, it doesn't seem to have happened this time around. Not as much. Did we see a similar thing with the framework itself? Like version one to two, there was some some changes that affected people and it really took, oh, yeah, two is so much better. Let's move there. I'm, maybe I'm not remembering that right. Yeah, actually, 2.0 was a huge step up. In, in a lot of ways, 1.0 was was probably not ready. Yeah. But it was shipped. This is a .NET framework. And then I think I think you look very similar to you know .NET Core the same kind of way. The .NET Core one that we shipped in June of 2016 that was really almost shipped for early adopters. There was a class of customers yeah. that came to us and said, "Hey, we we are doing these new cloud container workloads. We need to be able to support Linux." And so I think the primary people that took the 1.0 bits were people that really had a need. And now 2.0 is more of the general mainstream, ready for everybody kind of release. Right. And so, as you said, it, it mimics very similarly the the one one to two o wave on .NET Framework as well, because two o was had a lot more features than one point one did right. in, in the .NET Framework world. And it had performance boosts. And it, of course, I've done these interviews now with with Jason Zander, or talked of in detail about the whole SQL CLR and the impact it had on two point And you know, it's just a, these crazy details. But and I always thought it was interesting that you mirrored what happened in the, the sort of original framework where you did a 1 and a 1.1 and then a 2. Was that deliberate or is it just the natural consequence? That, is, that was not deliberate at all. When we shipped 1.0, the original idea was the uh, amount of time we, we thought we'd actually stay on a, on a major version was going to be about three years. That's right. our support policy is, hey, we think we'll support a 1.0 for about three years. And it was funny because, as you said, we had shipped 1.1. And we were already thinking in our minds, hey, we're going to bring 50,000 APIs back and we're going to make some changing on how the tooling works. And that felt like such a big change that we thought it was worthy of a of a major version. And also, I, I think it implies something else as well. I think you tend to find customers kind of wait for that first major version and sometimes themselves just as a, as a sign that the technology is kind of maturing a little bit. Yeah. And 2.0 really takes on a, a lot of those characteristics, in my opinion. And not to be the cliche, but the third version effect seems to be true. Again. Yeah, I, I think it's actually natural. I, it, here's what I think of. You ship a version. Yeah. And then you quickly react and, and patch the stuff that you saw that, that was immediately wrong with that version. And then you look at customer feedback for a period of time and go, hmm, these are the things that we missed. Right. And that third version, which in our case was the 2.0, is the one where you go and, and kind of close the gaps on all the things that you missed. Right. And you almost need a, a full feedback cycle to, to get that. And that's, I think, why you historically see a third version being the sweet spot. You ship a, ship a 1.0, then you ship a, an update to it, 
then you, you take a bunch of customer feedback and you ship again. And that's the one that really addresses, you know, the customer pain points. And does it happen again because then you start picturing what comes next or, you know, you have to re- come up with original ideas and then fix them and then see how they're used and then revise them and boom, we've got a three version cycle again. Yeah, I hope we don't have a three version cycle again, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if we actually repeat that again. Well, I just wonder if the cycle is going to be shorter. I, once again, as I said, now that we've done a major version again, I think we always go back and say, hey, we're going to, you know, we do a 2-1, a 2-2, a 2-3, and we'll go figure out when the right time is to go and make a major version. Once again, we, we, we try to hold major versions back to, you know, some major change uh, to the platform. On this interview today, we, we're going to talk about 2.1. So we're not done, huh? Yeah. We're never done, Richard. <laughs> In fact, you're, when I start talking about some, some of the 2.1 kind of themes and waves you're you know you're gonna you're gonna go duh uh once again this is a lot of this stuff here is again customer learnings right yeah well i want you to tell us all about that but just for one minute take a pause we're gonna have this very important message and we'll be right back when you're building an application you need it to be fast secure and always evolving with kubernetes engine on the google cloud platform Developers can deploy fully managed, containerized apps quickly and easily. Google has been running production workloads in containers for over 15 years, and they build the best of what they learn into Kubernetes, the industry-leading open-source container orchestrator. Kubernetes Engine combines automatic scaling, updates, and reliable self-healing infrastructure with open-source flexibility to cut down development cycles and speed up time to market. Learn more about Kubernetes Engine online at g.co slash getgke. That's g.co slash getgke. And we're back. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell, .NET Rocks, talking to Scott Hunter about the Core 2 roadmap. The Road Ahead. The Road Ahead. Somebody wrote a book called The Road Ahead. It's true. I think it was Bill. Yeah, you were about to you were about to tell us some cool things that are coming up here. Yeah. So, you know, once again, as I said, you, you kind of learn as you do this from customers and the, and the product. And the first big thing that we really are tackling with the 2.1 wave is faster build performance. And I don't know if this is a version one problem where we kind of go and, hey, you know, when you first start building a brand new platform, the apps that you start testing with are kind of small apps and you don't see the perf- performance of build performance. When I say build performance, I mean when you decide to compile your application, how long does that t- actually take? But we found that we had actually, you know, for small web applications, our build performance was actually kind of on par with .NET Framework and stuff like that. Hmm. But what we found was as we moved and looked at large web projects, in this particular case, I think we were using Orchard, which is a .NET-based CMS, the build times changed dramatically. I've got some some a slide here I'm looking at, and it shows that basically Orchard takes about 70 seconds to build on 2.0. Hmm. The 2.1 preview that we're, we're just about to ship, that 70-second build performance is going to go down to 22 seconds. Wow. Oh, man. How do you get that big of a jump? <laughs> I'll, I'll get there in a second. And then, then one, there's one more bump. We don't, we, don't even, we don't even think the 22 seconds is good. <laughs> we really want to get ourselves back into where we were with .NET Framework. And so we're, we're projecting that by RTM, we're going to be in a six-second range. Wow. So go from 70 seconds to six seconds. There's no time to get coffee anymore. There's definitely no time to get coffee anymore. (laughs) 
And there shouldn't be. .NET should not require you to get coffee. That's, that's right. That's faster than that. Yeah. A lot of just crazy optimizations. You find that in our build process, in many cases, we're computing the same stuff over and over and over again. And if you compute that thing the first time and store it somewhere and then reuse it for the next 20 files or whatever it is, your performance is going to go much, much faster. Right. Mm. We had some code in the tech that was actually looking to determine something. And the way it was hooked in, uh, the stuff it was determining en- ended up adding like 15% to the build time. Wow. You know, once again, that's something that what you should do is you should know that very early, cache it, and not do that again. So there's just a bunch of that kind of stuff. And so uh, if you're a core customer today, you're going to find that moving to 2.1, your build times are going to be much, much better than they were in, in 2.0. Another big part of the wave is we're going to continue to close the gaps on ASP.NET Core mm-hmm. and EF Core, which is, you know, as we ship the 2.0, there's still a couple of major features that we're missing in ASP.NET Core. A big one mm-hmm. is SignalR. That's going to come back in the in the 2.1 wave. Yes. I'm a huge SignalR fan. Me too. Getting smaller. SignalR is actually used inside of a bunch of Microsoft products today that people don't even know of. And so a huge fan. EF Core is going to get a bunch of stuff. Uh, one, of the, one of the biggest complaints we had about EF Core was we did not support lazy loading in EF Core. And that was probably the, the biggest piece of feedback we got on EF. EF Core was, hey, I'm an EF fan. I'm moving to EF Core. Where's my lazy loading? And so we almost didn't put it, we didn't bring it in originally EF Core because it, it scares us. It's a, it's a you know, uh, lazy loading is something where you can start referencing stuff. And then as you start referencing stuff, we actually run the queries behind the scenes to go get the data. And sometimes that scares us because as a customer, are you aware that as you do a dot, 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 that you're actually running more queries on the database server? Right. So it, it's a it's a great feature for usability, but we kind of like sandbagged it in, in EF Core 1 and 2, just seeing, you know, what do customers want? And by huge demand, they wanted that. And so we bring bringing that back. Another big thing that we're doing is continued work in performance. And I'll talk about some of the cool performance things in a second. Uh, a lot of customers might have used things like if you've, if you've ever used Node, Node has a cool feature where you can actually install something and do a dash G, which makes it global. And a lot of, a lot of folks use, you know, Node to install like command line tools and stuff because of this. We're bringing something like that to, to .NET Core as well. Let me just rumble through a couple things real quick. Okay. Go ahead. Big things that we have in Core, Core itself, not ASP.NET, but in Core itself is we have something called span of T. And span is something we did for kind of ourselves as well. It's a, it's an optimization. Let's say you have an array in .NET. Great example, our web server. Our web server, uh, the pile of headers comes in. And the first thing we do is we go and grab chunks of that header, that buffer that came in, and break it up into a bunch of pieces to become all the pieces that make up your header. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll parse that, turn it into strings and stuff like that. Well, span of T lets you actually slice up an array. But when you slice it up, we don't make a copy of it anymore. You're actually looking at a piece of the of the actual array. Wow. So instead of, you know, today.net basically copies something every time you you do something there. In this case, we can actually have it not do that copy. So that's basically just using a, a piece of the the memory from the original buffer. Now is that a performance benefit? Just when you get stuff that's big and it takes time to copy it around? No, it's it well the performance benefit, Richard, is as I was saying earlier. The first thing we do is, you know, this pile of bytes comes in that's the header. And the first thing we do is cut it up right. and turn it into a bunch of other objects. Yes. So if 30K of header comes in, we then make 30K of other stuff. Right. And you end up with 60K of stuff. Yep. So using this feature, I can just reuse 
a bunch of that 30K myself. Mm-hmm. That's where the perf comes into because we're not allocating as much RAM. And allocating RAM is the biggest perf thing for us because we have to we have to garbage collect that at some point. And I immediately searched in the .NET library on GitHub for span of T. And here's the docs and a sample and so forth. So this is not shipped yet, I think. But the whole conversation about what it should be is here. Yes. That's really cool. And it, it will ship with the 2.1 preview. All right. And we're using it inside of Kestrel, the web server, already. So that's one of the big things that drove Span was we had a bunch of unsaved code inside of Kestrel right. that was kind of doing this by itself. We were using other features of .NET to basically reuse memory. And so we said, hey, let's not let's quit doing that. and let's, let's create a feature that lets the framework do that for us in a safe way. Right. And so the Span of T is going to live in the framework. Yes. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily web specific or anything else. Your example was web specific, but it's just Yeah, but but it's it's a it's a .net core feature, not a ASP.net core feature. It's actually a .net core feature. Right. Very cool. And it's also interesting just, you know, you mentioned something like that. I go searching for it. There it is right there. Like you guys have to build all this stuff in public now, right? Yep. I mean, every new feature, all of this is it's in GitHub. It is all in GitHub. <laughs> you just have to go looking for it. Until you said its name, so that I had something to search for, I don't know that I could have found this. It's, you know, <laughs> CoreFX Lab slash docs slash backs. Yeah. You know, it's right. down there. It's on GitHub. You'll find it. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yes, sir. It's time to put two and two together and come up with 22. <laughs> oh, wait, I wrote that joke in JavaScript. Sorry. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, well, sometimes I hit them out of the park. There you go. Not today. Okay. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a experience subscription from our friends at DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. You can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Chris Farrow. Congratulations, Chris. Golf clap. Congratulations. I'll give you a real clap and some clappers. I'll give them both to you, sir. Chris just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just by being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of said fan club, but you have to sign up to win. All right, Scott, it's been a while since we talked. What do you think you'd do today with $5,000? What would you buy? Legos. Lego? Legos. Now, you did say Legos, not Egos, right? Because that'd be a lot of waffles, just saying. I said Legos, yes. Uh, we just came off the, the winter holiday, and, and over the winter holiday, I always build a bunch of Lego kits. That's one of my passions. Awesome. Mm. I just did the uh, Lego Saturn V. The what? 
So there's a Lego version of the Saturn V rocket. Oh, right. From the moon launches. Oh, wow. How big is it? It is like, it's about 2,000 pieces. And when you stand it up, it's probably two or three feet tall. Wow. Wow, nice. Get some detail in there. Wasn't this Christmas they came out with a new Millennium Falcon that's like 7,000 pieces? It was like the biggest beast you've ever seen? They did, yes. <laughs> Crazy. It's very expensive and lots of parts, and they're impossible to find. <laughs> they're all sold out everywhere. They're all sold out everywhere. The, the Saturn V, it took me about four, four and a half months to find the Saturn V. Wow. It's, hmm. it's a start. I mean, this toy has been around for decades. Yeah. And it, it seems like they're they're having a resurgence. Like just you know, not that it ever fell out of style, but it's just gotten really hip. $150 for the the one meter tall Saturn V kit. I think that's Canadian dollars, mind you. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's like two fifty a US as well. Hmm. If you can find one, because they're just sold out everywhere. They are hard to get. Oh, and yeah, I heard that, that that giant falcon was just insanely hard to find. Yeah, me too. We actually have in Microsoft we have an alias, a Lego alias. And when they came into stores, people people would actually say it was in in stock on the alias. It's like, hey, twenty came into this store. Wow! And they were they were typically gone in thirty minutes. Eight hundred bucks. Whoa! Eight hundred bucks. That's crazy for plastic bits, <laughs> and it's seventy five hundred pieces. That is hours and hours of frustration. But you know what? Legos when we were kids was just basic blocks right yeah. there weren't these kits that have special pieces that there's a particular way to put together a saturn V rocket and you need special pieces to do that yeah so i think these kits have been even more popular than just the blocks were when we were kids yeah they're, they're crazy I, I did look it up they're 120 bucks in the u.s is what the saturn five for the saturn five yeah so for five thousand dollars you can get a lot of rockets i can <laughs> get a millennium falcon a bunch of rockets <laughs> Yeah, there's whole cities. You can get a scale model. Yeah. Saturn V is amazing. I, I would highly recommend it to any any nerd out there that likes rockets and stuff like that. The real question is, do they have a Falcon Heavy? <laughs> they, I, they don't have any Falcon Jet. I, I, I think I've heard rumors that a Falcon is coming, though. I hope so, yeah. A Falcon Heavy would be awesome. We were supposed to go, my friend. Life got too complicated. I just wrote a long response to someone on one of our Geek Out shows about why is everyone so excited about Falcon Heavy when it was not as powerful as Saturn V. It's just, it seems mm. to have penetrated the 21st century gestalt in a way that nothing else has. Mm. It was amazing reading how people were moved by it. I mean, here at Microsoft, the world stopped for 20 minutes. Yeah. That thing launched. Yeah. The Everybody was watching it. And we watched Starman for hours. I mean, it just, I left it on my screen. It had real estate the whole day. Nobody will ever forget those two boosters landing simultaneously, you know, in Florida. That was just the craziest thing. I was really impressed with the Tesla. Yeah. I didn't think that was real at first. Yeah. Elon had that great line. He said, you know, CGI would have made that look way better. Reality is nowhere near as good looking. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was pretty darn good. Oh, uh, when the music hit. Yeah, it was, all, yeah. It, was it was amazing. What a thing. Oh my goodness. Five thousand dollars for the Lego, man. You'd be buried. You gotta allocate like a thousand dollars of that to shelving <laughs> and boxes just to contain it all. Oh, we're killing our listeners here. They want to get back to hear what's coming up in Coreland. Yeah, let's get back to that. So uh we just talked about span. Other big stuff we have is we have a, a tensor T type coming as well. Interesting. And this is as we see see things like ML and AI start to become bigger in the industry. 
what we find today is that in the .NET world, uh, there's a variety of third-party .NET libraries out there, and there's some internal ones at Microsoft, and they all have some of the base ML types that they implement themselves. And once again, we kind of envision the, the BCL as being something where, hey, the common types are here, and they're shared across all the frameworks. And so our goal, our goal here is to move some of the common types that you might be using in AI and ML into our frameworks, and then hopefully we'll have all the AI and ML frameworks that sit on top of .NET use those, and it'll give you better interop between those frameworks. Mm-hmm. Another big thing we have coming is we shipped a preview of it already in, in the November timeframe. We have something called the Windows Compatibility Pack. And what this is, is this is primarily pieces of .NET framework that we did not put into .NET Core because they're not cross-platform components. Oh. But some people are going to run their .NET Core projects on Windows machines. Yeah. And so why shouldn't we make those available? And so the my favorite ones that kind of come as part of this wave is System drawing comes here. A lot of folks in the web world use system drawing to resize images and to put watermarks and stuff on images. Mm -hmm. Another big one that we had lots of requests for was directory services. This lets you talk to things like Active Directory. Right. And so both of those two things and many, many more uh, are coming in in a NuGet package that you can basically just add to your .NET Core project and you can take advantage of those APIs. That's sweet. It's probably a whole show we could just do on the compatibility pack. Yep. I, I, you could easily do a whole show on that. Yeah. Emo would be the right person on my team to talk to you about that. That's, that's been his, his baby. I've, I found his document, oddly enough, on GitHub <laughs> for the Windows compatibility <laughs> pack. I'm going to include all these as show links so people could see, you know, how we're looking at all of these things. It's just really fascinating to see this. Two other ones I'll, I'll do quickly on, on, on core before we move on to like the CLI and then we'll move on to ASP.NET and EF. We have rewritten the sockets that we have instead of .NET Core. They've been based on uh, LibUV uh, historically as part of the, you know, Kestrel, ASP.NET control is based on this. And we we have some new high-performance web sockets or network sockets that we built our stack on. So you're going to see performance improvements based on that in the Kestrel case. And then we find that, um, you know, we've done a lot of work on performance of, of Kestrel to make your web apps really fast. But the reality is all your web apps or any of your apps probably make a, a network call, an HTTP client call to some API or something like that, especially in the microservice world, you're going to be calling mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of APIs. And HTTP client has not been fast enough. And so we've actually done a bunch of work on HTTP client, and it is 10 times faster in .NET Core 2.1. You're also using Poly too, right? In HTTP client? We do have some stuff with Poly in the ASP.NET space around doing some microservice stuff, yes. Yeah. Very cool. I'll get to that. CLI, the big thing which kind of we started the show on, which was getting that what we, we call internally, we call it interlude performance. And that is the compiling of, of your app between making a change and, and when you can run it again. So we have a bunch of bunch of improvements there. A big one here is global tools. And this is basically being able to, you know, .NET install something globally on the machine, just like npm dash, you know, install foo dash g. We have our .NET version of that. And the cool thing is it allows us to actually, it means anybody that has .NET uh, CLI on the machine can use that to basically install command line tools. We have a bunch of things that our tools depend on. If you look at, if you build an ASP.NET Core application and open up your csproj file, you'll likely find a node that references something called CLI reference tool. And that's referencing some NuGet packages that contain some CLI tools that, uh, that our, our tech depends on. Unfortunately, because we didn't have this feature, we litter these into your CSProj file. So your CSProj is full of a bunch of these things. 
And you'll find that if you want to like do EF migrations, you have to have a node inside your CS project file. The reason it has to be there is that node in the CS project file, when we do a build, it tells uh, the system to go out and restore that tool so the migration tools can actually run. It basically brings down the migration tools for your project. Right now, you have to litter all that stuff in your CS project file. Hmm. And if you don't have it, so if, for example, let's say you had a, a console application and you, and you decided to use some EF core and do a migration. If you tried to run the migration, you would get an error because it's not going to find the tool. And somehow you're supposed to magically figure out what line to go stick in your CS project file to make this make that work. Yeah. And so this move to having these global tools will enable us to get away from that. Number one, we won't litter your CS project file up with garbage. And then number two is if you want to do EF migrations, you just start writing code and do a migration and it will just work for you. So that's a cool part. Very cool. Those are probably my two favorites on the CLI. Let's move to ASP.NET Core. So a couple of big things that I really like in here. One is we have SignalR. Yep. Yay. That's our real-time framework we talked about earlier as well. That comes back as a feature in, in the 2.1. And then an, another one which has been on my list for a long time, and it was it was honestly the, the GDPR, which is some of the EU privacy requirements that, that kick in later this year that kind of drove us to really say it's time to go get this done, which is you're going to find that when you develop ASP.NET Core projects, they will all use HTTPS by default even for local development. Awesome. So how do you handle the certs? So what will happen is we will actually give you a developer cert on the machine for you. You'll get a developer cert and you'll be good to develop locally with that developer cert. The reason we think this is kind of important is, number one, you sh- everybody should be using HTTPS. But if you're like me, I've actually developed apps locally with HTTP and then pushed them to my production m- machine running HTTPS. Right. And you can run into some problems when that happens. Yep. Because your web browser complains if all the references on the page are not HTTPS. If you have an HTTPS page that references some HTTP pages or endpoints inside of it, the browser will complain and say your page is not secure. Yeah. And so developing with HTTPS means you will actually see that in local development and not when you try to push to production. And so I think uh, it'll help developers catch a bunch of a bunch of stuff. Along that same wave, we did our GDPR work as part of this as well, which is GDPR is this EU privacy thing. Most customers see it with the annoying click here to accept our, our privacy policy on all your websites. Yep. It is a thing. And so what we've done is we've actually built features into the ASP.NET Core templates that will have a tag helper you can put in that will automatically put that privacy notice on your, your web app. And there's a few other other tweaks we've done as well. Other parts of that requirement are a customer has the ability to download their data mm-hmm. and delete their data. Right. And so those are things that we're doing in, in that particular case. And you don't have to be in the EU for the GDPR to apply to you. If you do business with EU people, you know, mm-hmm. for example, on .NET Rocks, we have our, our survey and contest winners and some of them are in the EU. So we need to be compliant with GDPR as well. Yep. Right. The, the reality is if, if you have customers from the EU accessing your website, yep. you need to be doing this. Sure. Or they will come after you at some point. Mm-hmm. Another cool one is, you know, we did the Kestrel work in .NET Core 1 and 2, but we still have and we still recommend, you know, if you're running .NET Core on Windows, running it on IS is a great way to run it. What we've done up to this point is the way we, we run ASP.NET Core the same way that you would run PHP or Node or Java, right. which is... IS is running, we spin up a .NET core somewhere, and there's a reverse proxy between the web server and the uh, Kestrel server, so we can actually serve content from the from the site. That reverse proxy 
does create a, a performance delta. Now, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to get much better performance running Kestrel bare metal outside right. of a web server than behind a web server. We're bringing back a in-proc module like we've had for ASP.NET full framework for core. So this means if you're running on IIS with, with ASP.NET Core, you're going to see a six-time improvement in performance. Wow. Wow, indeed. That's kind of cool. You guys are going nuts over there. Yeah, we're always going nuts. Everything's faster, better, stronger, like Steve Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I guess Steve Austin would be the $6 billion man today, though. I don't think million dollars is <laughs> enough anymore. So. <laughs> 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 If you find an excuse to watch one of those old shows, it will make you sad. Your memories of it are so much better than what it was. (laughs) (laughs) They are. You are so right. (laughs) I feel the same way about Kentucky Fried Chicken, too. (laughs) My memory of eating it as a kid is way better than what it actually tastes like. All right. So the epitome of this bad acting that we thought was awesome, Space 1999. Oh, my God. I loved that show as a kid. I loved it as a kid. It's so bad. It's so bad. I loved it as a kid. I cannot make it more than 10 minutes before I just have to turn it off because it's it's just like it's it's offensive now. You are ruining good memories when you go back and look at that stuff again. Just leave it alone. Enjoy the memory. It's way better. Director must have been on acid because it was just really bad. Weird. Bad. All right. Anyway, what the heck were we talking about? Oh, yes. .NET Core. Hmm. Um, Faster. Better. A th- couple other things in ASP.NET Core is we have Build Time Razor. So you can actually now uh, compile Razor pages and views as part of your build. Okay. Which will give you much better startup times. We have, this is something that, that I, I think people have been asking us for in the MVC space for forever. We have the ability to put Razor pages and views into libraries. So you can now share UI in the MVC space. With ASP.NET Web Forms, it was always easy to share UI. You could make controls and stuff like that and mm. and share them around, but we've never had a great way of doing that in the MVC world. And with uh, UI as a library, you'll be able to do that. We actually wrote this feature ourselves because one of the things that we, we want people to be able to do is if, you know, we have a bunch of authentication options for ASP.NET Core today. You can either have like Windows Auth or you can have Azure Active Directory Auth or you can have what we call you know, we, we have a, we have another version of that auth where you can actually have a database and we'll like give you the login pages and, and hookups for open ID and stuff like that. The problem with those is you got to make that decision when you first build the application because each of those features comes with a whole pile of pages to support them. Right. And, uh, we're using UI as a library ourselves. So you can basically add authentication to an application after the fact. I don't know if we'll ship that feature in the two one wave, but the UI as a library is the steps of us moving it where you can take the UI for the authentication and, and just pop it in without having to go and create, you know, piles of folders and stuff like that in everybody's default template. We took a project written in Microsoft, uh, Henrik Christ Nelson, who was, who was, used to be on our team. He built a awesome webhook package for doing webhooks. This is, Hey, I want to host a webhook so somebody can call me or I want to call some popular webhooks. And we're building that. We're taking that new library he had. And we're building it directly into ASP.NET Core. Nice. I've got one final thing I want to talk about ASP.NET Core, which is we have something called HTTP Client Factory. And this is this is a, a super cool feature. This gives you HTTP Client as a service. And what I mean by that is typically if you're going to write some HTTP Client code, you need some policies to go with that. And, you know, for example, one example of a policy would be, hey, I want to 
retry three times if my connection fails the first time. Every time today, you, you probably what you do today is you actually write that that retry logic right in your code. Right. And so we're going to let you have a bunch of things like caching, retry logic, timeouts, circuit breakers can all be put into this HP client factory. You configure the policies how you want them. Then you ask the, 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 the factory to give you one of these things. And, you know, you can reuse that around your code. So that's a that's a huge feature that we're that we're as we're thinking about microservices. Yeah. And what are the common pitfalls and, and pain points that customers see when they do this kind of stuff? Awesome. And that's that's what we were talking about before with Poly. That's poly.net yes. you're using there. Yeah. Great stuff. So that that was ASP.NET Core. Let's let's run on to EF real quick. And I'll talk about two EF things just to close out. The biggest one, as I said at the beginning of the show, is huge pile of customers have been asking us for lazy loading. Lazy loading is coming back, which I think customers will really, really like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another one that I'm I'm really excited about. And this is going to be something that'll be kind of more of preview mode in the two one wave. And this is something that we asked our MVPs many years ago. We were asking, "Hey, relational databases are great, and and EF is is primarily been designed around relational databases. But what are people's thoughts about using EF with non relational databases, things like Mongo, right, Azure Table Storage, and stuff like that?" And we thought people were going to say, "No, we don't really want that." But the answer was was quite different, which is hey, there's a bunch of libraries for accessing Mongo and stuff like that, we, and, and they're all slightly different. We love being able to have one consistent interface for our database code, whether it's relational or non-relational. And so uh, we will ship a preview in the 2.1 wave of support, our first support for non-relational databases, and we'll have a provider for Azure Cosmos DB. Interesting. Nice. And it, Cosmos has a, has a good Mongo API as well. Yeah, Cosmos underneath the covers can do Mongo. And so it's, it'll use the same EF, EF programming model to talk to these non-relational databases. You know, as I said, we, we, we were kind of taken aback when people said that's what they wanted. Hmm. But I think it's going to be pretty exciting. I, I, if you ever use the Azure Cosmos SDK, it's not very good. I'm just being frank. It's painful to use. And I think you're going to really enjoy being able to get the benefits of using a Cosmos DB with a much easier programming model from EF Core. Right. Isn't this what Link was supposed to be for anyway? It was. And you'll be able to do Link for this. I mean, Link itself was meant to be a technology for writing queries. Those queries do not necessarily have to be against a relational database. I mean, we've seen people use Link all over the place in their code and stuff like that. And Link to SQL and EF were just implementations of Link that that talk to relational databases. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just sort of putting it all under the same hood. So people who are familiar with the EF programming model are just going to be able to get to any kind of data store. Yep. That's goodness. Support for system transactions uh, comes in the EF Core 2.1 wave as well. Really? Wow. That'll make a bunch of folks happy. We didn't have that support in the 1.0 and 2.0 versions because transactions and system.transactions is actually a Windows feature. It uses a a thing called MSDTC, which is Microsoft Distributed Transaction Coordinator, to actually do all the work uh, for this. Since then, we've actually opened up system transactions so you could do a non-MSDTC implementation of it if you wanted to. And then we put the hooks into EF so EF can use that, which means pretty much by default, you'd want to use system transaction, you know, if you're on Windows, you just implement more code to get something to work on Linux. Yeah. But that'll be something that I, I hope we'll see in the future as well. Yeah, because it's going to need to be transaction coordinators for any of the platforms that are supported then, right? Yep, you're gonna correct. Need, you're going to need it over in OSX land too. Exactly. But we've opened up the oh. hooks in, the, in system transactions so you can actually start doing these types of things. But the, it's just an interesting idea about building a third-party transactional coordinator, period. 
Yes. Hmm. Could be an interesting area of work. Like that sounds like a good project all by itself. You know, speaking of databases all up, I, it, another cool thing is one of the biggest things that we've heard from, from our, our customers as they're moving to and starting to use core is warning support for Oracle, uh, the Oracle database with .NET Core. Oh yeah. And just like in the last week, Oracle has released the first preview of their Oracle provider for .NET Core. So wow. if you just Google Oracle provider for .NET Core, you should be able to find that. It's a preview at this point. It doesn't have EF Core support yet. That'll be coming in the future as well. But it's great to see Oracle finally get into the wave of supporting .NET Core. Before we wrap it up, how's XAML standard coming along? What I would say on XAML standard is see us at build. Um, at the build conference, we have a bunch of interesting stuff we're going to talk about uh, around .NET framework and around UI. And so I would just say, give us till May and you know we'll have a something to say that I, I think will excite everybody. Wow, that's great. To close on core, core 2.1, the preview should be coming out right as the show actually hits the hits the wire. Mm-hmm. And we'll have a second preview in, in uh, March. We have an, uh, an RC in, in April. And we'll have a RTM somewhere, I would hope, in the, the May-June uh, time frame. The idea is to, you know, hopefully be around the build time frame. So uh, uh, even though the preview is going to come out right when this show comes out, these bits are going to be RTM pretty quick. We've been working on them for a long time. Awesome. Scott, thanks, man. It's so great to catch up with you and to hear all the cool things that you guys are doing. I can't wait. Thanks a lot. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a